Let's bow our heads and approach our Father in prayer. Lord, in these last days, you have chosen to speak to us by your Son. And we have been listening to your Son's voice over these many weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, Lord, we have another opportunity to listen to him. And I pray that you would come right now and give us alertness to Jesus, uh, Father, uh, that we would hear him not only uh, to hear him in this hour and walk out and forget about what we've heard, but that, Lord, you would help us to hear him with our spiritual ears, uh, with our guts, so that later uh, this week we would go out and live uh, what it is that Jesus is saying to us this morning. Lord, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, we thank you for it. It is a faith-expanding, world-expanding uh, section. And we pray, Lord, again, that we would have ears to hear. And thank you for being present with us and blessing us uh, during this time. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a season when I was growing up when both my brother and I played drums. And in this particular season that I'm talking about, uh, my brother and I both had our own drum sets in our own rooms at home. And sometimes we would both be playing those drum sets at the same time. And you would think, wouldn't you, that my parents would uh, run screaming (laughs) out the door as they were upstairs doing uh, dishes because of all the racket that they would run out. But in fact, there, there came a point where Uh, Between my brother and I both playing our drum sets and my sister practicing piano, the noise just became a regular part of life in the Dunbar house. My parents said actually that they grew accustomed to it, if you can believe it. Uh, They simply didn't notice the noise anymore. My question to this day is how can you not notice such racket? What we have at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most important, directly applicable, crucial passages in all the Bible. Uh, These words of Jesus that we call the Lord's Prayer should really occupy a central place in the life of every Christian. But my fear is that we've become so familiar with the Lord's Prayer, like my parents had become familiar with their two sons drumming, that we don't really notice it anymore. We may be able to recite the Lord's Prayer from memory, but somewhere along the way, the impact and the import and the vitality of the Lord's Prayer has been lost on many of us. What we want to do this morning is simply walk through this prayer of Jesus that is so familiar to so many of us. My modest hope today is that the Spirit of God would bless us simply by rekindling our desire to pray in the way that Jesus instructs us to pray here. And that he would do this for his glory and for our benefit. As we approach Matthew's record of the Lord's Prayer, which is, I hope you have a Bible open already, uh, it's Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. It was read for us earlier. And it has that little addendum on it, which is verses uh, 14 and 15. As we approach this section of Scripture, I just want to give you just a couple of brief observations about both the placement of this prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, where is it placed, and also about the structure of this prayer. The Lord's Prayer is placed, we need to notice, at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. The fact that this prayer is at the very center of the sermon indicates to us, I think very strongly, that it was meant to be conspicuous. It was meant to be noticed as something very crucial and very pivotal. The Lord's Prayer also comes right after Jesus has discussed both 
hypocrisy in prayer and the misuse of language in prayer. Now with the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is giving us his model prayer, his instruction to us on how it is that we should pray. As to the structure of the Lord's Prayer, it's not unlike the structure of the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, the first three or four commandments are God-oriented. They are God-centered in their nature. While the latter six commandments of the Ten Commandments have to do with life on the horizontal, with human doings and human uh, concerns. Well, similarly, in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, the first three petitions we will notice of the six petitions that make up the prayer, the first three are God-oriented petitions. That is, these petitions are centered on God and his bidding, while the last three petitions have more to do with us, with our needs and how God fulfills those needs. All right, so with that as a little introduction, let's go to the prayer beginning at verse 9. Jesus instructs us, notice carefully, he says, pray then like this. Now what I want you to notice here is that Jesus does not say, pray this exact prayer every time you pray. Rather he says, pray like this. Now when I was teaching drums, I would say to a student, When you hold a drumstick in your hand, maintain a space between your index finger and your thumb like this. And as I said that, I would be demonstrating with my own hand. The idea was, here is the pattern that I want you to strive for as you hold the drumstick. Jesus here is giving us a pattern for our praying. That's why he says, like this. He's providing for us a model, a guide for our praying. The Lord's Prayer is a pattern upon which we are to base all of our prayers. Now, we can recite the exact words of the Lord's Prayer in a profitable way. Of course we can. There's a long history of doing so in the church. But we're just merely pointing out here that in Matthew 6, 9, the words like this indicate to us that what he's about to say is a prescribed pattern for us, his model for us as we pray. We can think of the Lord's Prayer perhaps as a skeleton upon which we can hang the flesh of our prayers. The skeleton gives structure to our praying. It tells us which topics we should be praying about. It orients us toward proper desires in our praying. We need this. And it also steers us toward the proper emphases that we should have whenever we pray. And I think it also is nudging us toward the sort of spirit that we should have when we pray. Again, friends, we need not limit our praying to the exact words of the Lord's Prayer every time we pray. But having said that, all of our praying should take its cues from the Lord's Prayer, and our praying should be mindful of this prayer. In the words of Tim Keller, he says, The Lord's Prayer must stamp itself on our prayers, shaping them all the way down. Or listen to J.I. Packer. Packer says, Every prayer of ours should be a praying of the Lord's Prayer in some shape or form. To pray in terms of it is the sure way to keep our prayers within God's will. To pray through it, he says, expanding the clauses as you go along is the sure way to prime the pump 
when prayer dries up and you find yourself stuck. Packer says, and I think this is 100% true, he says we never get beyond the Lord's Prayer. We never get beyond the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says in verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father. Notice this very well, friends. Our praying, do you pray? Our praying must begin with God. Do you have a laundry list of requests? Maybe. Do we have personal burning desires that we want to bring to God in prayer? Perhaps. But whatever the case, our praying must begin with God, with a focus on God and a pause on self. Our Father. Now, do notice here, friends, the word our. Have you noticed that? This is very instructive. Jesus could have said, pray then like this, my Father. But instead, he chose the word our. Our Father. The Christian faith is an our thing before it is a my thing. Our faith is a communal faith. Yes? Contrary to the individualistic focus that so many of us in the contemporary church tend to have, Christianity is a community project. It's about life in the body of Christ, which is made up of many members. Our Father. We are not loners in the Christian life, and neither can we be. Our Father. Jesus draws us into community here, notice, right as the the model prayer begins. And of course, that word Father. Ah, what an amazing word. Is this not? We bow our hearts and our minds in prayer to our Father. And not only to our Father, but to our Father in where? In heaven. Now listen carefully because I think this applies to so many of us. My biological father was in Edmonton during my years with him. And although I love my biological father deeply, God rest his soul, he was a flawed father. Just as I am a deeply flawed father to my three children. Autumn is here today, and she probably could amen to that. (laughs) Friends, the need of the hour is to renew our minds as we bow our hearts and heads in our praying and to recognize that we are approaching our Father in heaven. This Father to whom we pray is no earthly father. He is so different than any and every earthly father. Who is this father to whom we pray? Well, this is the father who is described, and it was referenced earlier, described in the parable of the prodigal son. He's the father who runs to us and welcomes us home and showers us with goodness and forgiveness and love, despite the fact that we have so gravely dishonored him. Amen? The Father to whom we pray is the Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. He is the Father who so loved us that he sent his own willing son to die as our substitute. 
The Father who we address in prayer is the Father who never wavers for one millisecond in his commitment to the welfare of his kids. We approach this Father when we pray and no other Father. And he's in heaven, notice. What does this mean, in heaven? It means primarily that our Father exists on a different plane than we do. Amen? Heaven is the place of all authority. Heaven is the place of power. Our Father in heaven is the Father who, because he is in heaven, has all wisdom and has all ability. Our Father in heaven is not subject to the limitations of earthly parents. Our Father in heaven is the all-powerful one who controls all of history, leading history toward his appointed target at his appointed time. Our Father in heaven has never needed anyone to instruct him. His counsel is eternal, it is perfect, and it is unchanging. This is the Father who we pray to when we pray. Now, I need to ask you right now, are you a son or a daughter of this Father? Do you know that you are? Has he brought you into his family, adopted you, by grace, so that you can legitimately call him Father. Do you know if this has happened in your life? The scripture says, to all who received him and who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Well, when Jesus instructs us to begin our praying, then, with our Father in heaven, he's calling us to pause, isn't he? Right at the start of our prayers, he's calling us to pause and to realize our position. What is our position? We are children as believers. We have a perfect, all-powerful Father as believers. And the reason we are in this family relationship at all is only because of the work of Jesus Christ for us. Let's go forward. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here we have the first petition of the six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Name. And again, notice, won't you, how utterly God-focused and God-centered is the beginning of this model prayer. Jesus wants us to begin our prayers by asking that the Father's name be hallowed. Now, in the world of the Bible, friends, that word name, this refers to the person who bears the name. That word name here is a reference to the character of God, to the honor of God, and to the reputation of God. And the word hallowed or hallowed means known as holy or honored as holy. So that, putting it together, when we pray to the Father, hallowed be your name, what we are praying is, may your reputation, God, may your self, God, may your character and your ways and your attributes be honored as holy, known and acknowledged as holy. May you, O God, be made great. Hallowed be your name. And friends, do notice here again the primary concern of Jesus as this prayer kicks off. What's the primary concern? 
The primary concern is not for us to come to God and present him with our wish list right off the bat. Notice this. The primary concern as this prayer begins is not my wants and my needs and my desires and my world. Rather, the primary concern that Jesus wants us to have as we begin to address the Father is that the Father's fame and the Father's glory and His reputation be magnified in the world. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to Your name give glory. The primary issue for us at this moment in this earthly life, as long as we are drawing breath, is that God be honored and that God be made famous and that God be praised. I love what Paul Tripp says about hallowed be your name. He says this. Listen to this. It's fantastic. He says, and this really challenged me this week. He said, prayer is about something vastly bigger and more beautiful than laying before God your personal wish list for the day. Because your life, he says, is meant to be about something bigger than that as well. Prayer is, in itself, a recognition that something exists in the world that is greater and more glorious than you. Prayer is meant to remind you that your little world, filled with your little plans, is not ultimate. Prayer teaches you, he says, that there is a greater glory than any glory that you could ever want for yourself. Prayer is meant to help you remember that the deepest, most important motivation for every person who has ever taken a breath is the awe of God. Amen? Now, my friend, consider this. If you were baptized... In the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, then you are a living, breathing, walking bearer of the name of God. Wherever you go, you represent God's name, for better or for worse. We hallow God's name when we live in accordance with his commandments. We make his reputation great when we travel through trials with joy. We make his name great when in every circumstance we conduct ourselves with his grace and with his charity and with his mercy. When we show ourselves grateful to him, We hallow his name. Jesus says to us this morning, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then verse 10, here comes the second petition. Your kingdom come. Now this second petition is about what? It's about desiring that the rule of God would have complete and total sway everywhere. These are the only three words that came out of my mouth that I could find when I heard about New Zealand this week. Your kingdom come. The assumption behind this particular petition is that right now, Listen carefully. Right now there is another kingdom at work. That in this season, prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, there is an opposing kingdom of darkness that is holding people in its dominion. When we pray to God, your kingdom come, what are we praying? 
Well, first of all, we are yearning, aren't we? And we are desiring that people everywhere would be freed from that kingdom of darkness and that they would submit to God's lordship. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for the hastening of the day when evil will finally be done away with. When the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are saying to God that we want people around us to experience his saving grace. When we pray, your kingdom come, we mean, may the gospel have success in our city. May glad submission to the King of Kings be real and be lasting on the streets of Canada and in Nigeria and in Iran and in the Philippines and in Jamaica and in every corner of the world. This is a big prayer. When we pray your kingdom come, we are yearning out loud that whatever opposes God whether it be in our own hearts or outside of us in the world, whatever opposes God, that it would be rooted out and deleted. Your kingdom come. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then he follows that up with the third petition, which is, oh, notice this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This, friends, is so important for our praying. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, instructs us here to pray always that whose will would be done. That God's will would be done. God's will So often, our praying can really be focused on our own will, can't it? Our own plan. We want God to exercise power to make our plan happen. And when God fails to act based on our will, we get upset at God. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. To pray, your will be done. From our heart is to deny self, isn't it? To pray, your will be done, is to submit to a better, wiser will than our own will. To pray, your will be done, is to open ourselves, listen, to open ourselves to the possibility of receiving what we may not want or expect. And then on the flip side, to pray, your will be done, is to open ourselves to the possibility that we may fail to receive what we thought would be best for us. To pray your will be done is, listen, to crucify our own will and to trust the will of someone who knows better than we do. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. I really appreciate what Kenneth Bailey says here. He says, In heaven, the will of God flows like a great river that has no barriers to halt its progress. On earth, however, sin interrupts the flow of God's desire for good for all people. But such a desire is his perfect will. 
We pray asking that here on earth we might enjoy the perfect will of God as it is enjoyed in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Well, friends, as we indicated at the beginning today, the Lord's Prayer begins with these God-saturated, God-centered, God-oriented petitions that we have just thought through just just a little bit together. But then the prayer switches in verse 11 to deal with horizontal or more horizontal concerns, our needs as human beings. But even here, we will see that these are still very much God-centered petitions because God is the one who supplies each of the needs in every case. Let's go to verse 11. When we pray, Jesus wants us to pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. What's Jesus telling us here? He's telling us that it glorifies God when we approach him in a posture of dependence for the necessities of life. How many of us realize that each and every day we live off the divine dole? Each and every day we live off the divine dole. Have you really grasped that fact in your life? This part of the Lord's Prayer is where we are encouraged to admit to God that we depend on Him every day to preserve our lives by giving us the necessities that only He can give. Now, bread in the ancient Near East where Jesus was preaching this sermon was a necessity. People ate it every single day of their lives. And it took sunshine and it took seeds and it took plants and rain and the strength of people harvesting and it took human ingenuity to have bread appear on your table. All of this came from God. We depend on God for bread. Now, in our day, in our affluent society, of course, bread is optional, isn't it? And some of us are gluten intolerant. But the point of the petition, let's not miss the point, the point is, what are the necessities that are necessary to keep us alive? Water? Shelter? A beating heart? Weather? Peace, this fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer is purposed by Jesus to help us see that we are in fact dependent for survival on the God who sustains the universe. Did you know that right now God is sustaining the law of gravity and God is sustaining the law of friction? And without friction, this building right now would disintegrate. God is the one who is sustaining the universe, and we should always approach him in a posture of thankful dependence. Let's go to verse 12. This is where we have the fifth petition of the six. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgotten our debtors. Here, I want us also to skip down immediately to verses 14 and 15, which you see on the screen there. I'm convinced that verses 14 and 15 need to be read in conjunction with verse 12. So verses 14 and 15 read, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, notice very carefully that there is a significant amount of space, isn't there, within the span of just four verses that is devoted to the idea of forgiveness. Obviously for Jesus, 
Forgiveness is a topic that is highly and centrally important. And the forgiveness notice that he's talking about in this section of his sermon is a bi-directional or a two-way forgiveness. Notice this. God's forgiveness toward us and our forgiveness toward other people. Those two directions of forgiveness are related to one another in the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ. But how are they related? The basic idea here seems to be that they are a package deal. That you can't have one without the other. They go together. They can't be separated. God's forgiveness of your sin has a real relationship to your forgiveness of the sins of other people. Well, we want to talk more about the relationship, the nature of the relationship between the two. Listen, as we read verse 12 and then verses 14 and 15, at first glance, it could appear to us that what Jesus is saying here is, God's forgiveness of us is dependent on our forgiveness of others. Or, God's forgiveness of us won't happen until we forgive other people who have offended us. But that can't be right, can it? Because we know from the wider testimony of Scripture that God's mercy toward us is in no way dependent on our works. Amen? God's mercy, in this case His forgiveness of our debts or trespasses, is certainly never a reward that is given because of our deeds and because of our works. So then what is Jesus saying in these verses? I think what he's saying is more or less this. And listen carefully. You will necessarily be a person who forgives other people their trespasses against you if you yourself have experienced the preciousness of of God forgiving you your trespasses against Him. In other words, your forgiving other people of the horrible things that they have done to you, that forgiveness that you extend to others is evidence. It is evidence that you yourself have been broken by the forgiveness that God has extended to you. The two directions of forgiveness will go hand in hand for the person who has truly been made alive in Jesus Christ. My friend, right now, if you are sitting here and you have a magnified vision of the trespasses that others have committed against you. You're all hot and bothered about the bad and the unjust things that others have done to you. And yet at the same time, you minimize or you ignore the enormity of your own trespasses against God. If that's you, then you must ask yourself very seriously, do I know the gospel? Am I, after all, a gospel person? Am I a saved person? If you have a revenge-seeking heart, if you find it well-nigh intolerable, to come clean on your own trespasses and sins while you rage loudly at the trespasses that others have committed against you, 
What it means, to quote Martin Luther, is simply that your heart is not right with God. Examine yourself right now. And my counsel to you is to fly to the mercy of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is so massively important to the second person of the Godhead, to to our Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Matthew 6, he wants us to make forgiveness an issue of our every prayer. He's asking us a difficult question here, isn't he? The question is, does the forgiveness and mercy that God extends to you every single day, does that mercy and forgiveness of God have a correspondence with the forgiveness and mercy that you are extending to others? And if not, there is something dreadfully wrong. I want to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones here because he sums this part of the prayer up, I think, rather nicely. He says this, The person who knows that he or she has been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ is a person who must forgive others. That person cannot help himself or herself. Lloyd-Jones says, If we really know Christ... As our Savior, our hearts are broken and cannot be hard. And we cannot refuse forgiveness. If you are refusing forgiveness to anybody, he says, I suggest that you have never been forgiven. Now may each of us examine ourselves very soberly under the word of God here. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then finally, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now here... With the first half of the verse, we have an instant problem, or so it seems. Jesus wants us to pray to God, notice, that God would not lead us into temptation, and yet, doesn't James 1.13 say that God tempts no one? So it seems there's a tension here and that we have to try somehow to resolve this tension. What helps us, I think, is to notice, notice this very carefully, that Jesus does not say here, do not tempt us, God. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that because he knows that God cannot and does not tempt us to sin. Rather... What Jesus says here, and do notice this very carefully, is that he says, lead us not into temptation. What Jesus wants us to pray when we pray is that God would steer us away from situations where the devil would seize an opportunity to tempt us. Listen, friends, this part of the Lord's Prayer is essentially a confession. Listen, a confession here of our weakness. Jesus wants us to go to God and confess our weakness in the area of being tempted to sin. And it's in that weakness that we ask God to lead us away from situations where the devil would pounce and tempt us. Now... A little bit of uh, congregation uh, participation here. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm weak. Now turn to your other neighbor and say, I need God's help. (laughs) 
There are, last I counted, there are no Christian superstars. None of us is even halfway invincible. We must grapple with the fact that we are weak in the hour of temptation, and we must pray to God that he would preserve us from the temptation to sin. Lead us not into temptation. And as we pray this, we are not passive ourselves, are we? We ourselves pray God's help, yes, but at the same time, friends, we act shrewdly as Jesus desires us to do. And we ourselves flee from temptation, and we also make sure that we are making no provision for the lusts of the flesh. As Dan Doriani puts it, we structure our lives so that it is harder to sin. We structure our lives so that it is harder to sin. Do what you need to do as you pray this prayer. Well, the final clause of verse 13 and the final clause of the Lord's Prayer is, Deliver us from evil. Now, I want you to picture yourself in the following difficult situation. Okay? Just use your mind's eye for a minute. You're sleeping. You're sawing logs. You're fast asleep. And then suddenly, a noise wakes you up, and you discover that you're behind the wheel doing 100 kilometers an hour, about to hit another car head-on unless you crank the wheel to the right. The question I want to ask is, when it comes to evil, evil inside you and evil outside you in the world, Are you more like the person sleeping, unaware, blissful? Or are you the awake and the aware person who sees the imminent threat and danger? Notice, won't you, that Jesus uses the word deliver here. Deliver. Us from evil. The prayer is here for God to deliver us from evil. And that word deliver is a strong verb. What does it imply? It implies that you and I are in a helpless place when left on our own. Helpless against the fierceness and the magnitude of evil. Evil that is in us evil that is in the world, evil that is in Satan and his principalities. We need God's deliverance from this car wreck called evil. Deliver us, is what Jesus wants us to pray. Deliver us from evil. So here we have more desperate dependence on God in this part of the prayer. I want to quote Charles Quarles here. He says this, The use of the verb deliver in 6.13 implies the helplessness of the disciple apart from God's intervention. The disciple does not pray, listen, the disciple does not pray that God will assist him in battling the evil one. The disciple is so weak, he says, that he or she is little match for the devil. Did you know that? You are little match for the devil on your own. Quarrel says, the disciple needs a savior, not an assistant. The disciple needs a hero, not a helper. The disciple needs a champion, who will fight evil and the evil one for him and who will snatch him from the clutches of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. 
Deliver us from evil. And we could also translate this very viably. Deliver us from the evil one. Rescue us, Lord, from the corruption of ourselves and from the wickedness in this world and from the awful power of Satan and his hosts. Beloved of the Lord, pray then like this. Here is a model for you to base your praying on. Our Father in heaven, all-powerful God, with whom we have this intimate family relationship. Hallowed be your name. May your reputation, O God, and may your fame spread on this earth, and may it begin in my life. Your kingdom come. May your good and your glorious rule become universal. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your desire, Lord, and your purposes in heaven infiltrate and saturate the situation of the earth. And may we all be people who happily and zealously do your will. Give us this day our daily bread. Supply us with every practical necessity so that we may continue in our obedience to you. And forgive us our debts, as we, we also have forgiven our debtors. Yes, forgive us for our failure to pay, which is what a debt is, our failure to pay what we owe you. Just as, on a much smaller scale, we continue to forgive others. And lead us not into temptation. Steer us away, O God, from those places where Satan would want to pounce on us to make us sin. But deliver us from evil. Rescue us from the evil that is within us and outside of us. Amen. This being St. Patrick's Day, our benediction is from the breastplate prayer of St. Patrick. May Christ be your shield this week, Christ before you, Christ behind you, Christ beneath you, Christ above you, Christ on your right, Christ on your left. May Christ be with you, Christ be in you, alone and in multitude, near and far, for all you face and for all your life, that you may live in the protection and power of his blessing. Amen.